Chapter Ten of the Escaping Club by A. J. Evans. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. Chapter Ten: Attempts to Escape. When we had been a few days at the fort and had had time for a good look round, Room Forty Five formed themselves into an escaping club. That is to say, our ideas and discoveries would become common property. If possible, we would all escape together. But if the way out was only for two or three, the rest would help those selected to go to the best of their ability. It was universally agreed that Fort Nine was the toughest proposition that any of us had yet struck. The difficulty was not so much the material obstacles, but the suspicious nature of the Germans. Medlicott and Oliphant, as the most experienced prison-breakers, came to the conclusion that it was absolutely necessary to have more accurate knowledge of the numbers, positions, and movements of the sentries on the ramparts and round the moat at night than we already possessed. For this purpose it was decided that one of us must spend a night out. It was no job to be undertaken lightly. It met a fifteen hours' wait on a freezing night. For the first three and the last three hours of this time it would be almost impossible to move a muscle without discovery, and discovery meant a very excellent chance of being stuck with a bayonet. Besides this there were two appels to be faked, the appel just before sunset and the early morning one. There was no appel at nine o'clock in those days. Our rooms were separated from one another by three-foot-thick walls, but in these walls were archways leading from one room to the other. These archways were blocked up by boarding and formed recesses in each room which were usually employed as hanging cupboards for clothes, coats, etc. Under cover of these we cut a couple of planks out of the wooden barrier and made a hole so a man could slip through quickly from one room to the other. These planks could be put back quickly and it would have needed a pretty close examination to have discovered where the board was cut once pictures had been pasted over the cracks and coats had been hung up in front. There was some difficulty at first in obtaining the necessary tools for the work. First plank we cut through with a heated table knife, but for the second one we managed to steal a saw from the German carpenter who was doing some work in one of the rooms and return it before he missed it. It must not be forgotten that there was absolutely no privacy in the fort and that a sentry passed the window and probably stared into the room every minute or two. A special watch had to be kept for him, and you had to be prepared at any moment to look as if you were doing something quite innocent. Room 43 was inhabited by Frenchmen, but as usual in Fort Nine they were quite willing to help us. We practiced the trick many times till every one was perfect in his part. The rehearsals were most amusing. One of us pretended to be able during appell. First he tapped at the door of 43 and counted the men in the room, shut the door, and walked about seven paces to the next door, tapped and entered. Between the time Abel shut one door till the time he opened the next, six to eight seconds elapsed. During those seconds it was necessary for the Frenchman to slip through the hole, put on a British warm, we lived in coats in the cold weather, and pretend to be Oliphant. Abel knew every man by sight in every room but as long as he saw the requisite number of officers in each room 
he did not often bother to examine their faces. After we had done it successfully, several other rooms adopted the method, and the faking was done a very large number of times before the Germans discovered it, four months later. The early morning appell was really easier. For several mornings the fellow in the bed nearest the hole made a habit of covering his face with the bedclothes. Abel soon got used to seeing him like that, and, if he saw him breathing or moving, did not bother to pull the clothes off his face. The Frenchman had simply to run from his bed, bolt through the hole and into the bed in our room, cover up his face, and go through the motions of breathing and moving his legs sufficiently, but without overdoing it. All this had been practiced carefully beforehand. We had, of course, enormous fun over these preparations, stealing the saw and cutting the planks, pretending to be able during appell, and all the time dodging the sentry at the window. This sort of amusement may seem childish, but it was the only thing which made life tolerable at Fort Nine. We cast lots as to which one of us was to sleep out. It fell to Oliphant. I own I breathed a sigh of relief, as I did not relish the job. The next thing to do was to hide him outside on the ramparts. The place was selected with great care, and was behind one of the traversers up on the ramparts on the south side, for our idea was for some or all of us to hide up there and swim the moat on the south side one dark night. Medlicott and Milne dug a grave for him, whilst Fairweather and I kept watch. Just before the appell bell went we buried him and covered him with sods and grass. Of course he was very warmly clad, but he had a pretty beastly night in front of him, as it was freezing at the time. It was about 4.30 p.m. when he was covered up, and he would not get back to our room in comparative warmth till 8.15 next morning when the doors were opened. The evening appell went off splendidly, but the night was brighter than we had hoped, and we were rather anxious about him. There was some anxiety also about the morning appell, as we could not be quite certain which way Abel would take the appell, up or down the passage, that is to say, which room, forty-two or forty-three, would he come to first. It made all the difference to our arrangements. By careful listening we found out which way he was coming, and when he poked our substitute, who groaned and moved in an oft-rehearsed manner, we nearly killed ourselves with suppressed laughter. About an hour afterwards, just as we were going out to cover his retreat, Oliphant suddenly walked in, very cold and hungry, but otherwise cheerful. He had had quite a successful night, and had gained pretty well all the information we wished for. The bright moon had prevented him from crawling about very much, but he had seen enough for us to realize that it would be a pretty difficult job to get through the sentries and swim the moat, even on a dark night. Although we temporarily abandoned this scheme, owing in the first place to the difficulties which we only realized after Oliphant's expedition, and secondly because faking a pal was a very chancy business for more than two people, we nevertheless made the most careful preparations to escape at the first possible opportunity. Several schemes were broached. One of these schemes I always considered a good one. In the low and flat country in which the fort was situated, very thick fogs used to come down quite suddenly. As soon as it became foggy all the prisoners had to come into the fort, and the doors of the courtyards were shut. 
Our idea was either to wait outside carefully hidden when the order was given to come in, or to have some method of getting into the courtyard in foggy weather. In either case we thought it would not have been a difficult business to cross the narrow moat on the north side during a fog in the daytime. At nighttime there were sentries in the courtyards and on the ramparts, as well as three in front of our windows. In the daytime there were none in the courtyards or on the ramparts, and only one in front of our windows. The difficulty was to get into the courtyards after we had been locked up. I climbed up a ventilator several times to see if it were not possible to cut our way out there, but the more one went into the details, the more difficult it seemed. In the meantime we went on with our preparations, map copying, which was Fairweather's department, rations and equipment, of which Medlicott and Oliphant were in charge, intelligence department as to movements of sentries and habits of hunts, which was my job. Boots, socks, grease, homemade rucksacks, concentrated food and the correct amount of meat and biscuits for a ten days' march, maps, compasses, the route to follow, and numerous other details were carefully prepared and the material hidden. We thought that it was unlikely that a larger party than four would be able to go and Medlicott, Oliphant, Fairweather, and myself were selected to be the first party to try if anything turned up. The next bit of excitement was the escape of Kick and Party. This happened when we had been in the fort about a month. Early on Kick had left room 45 and gone into a French room 41. One afternoon he asked me if I would help him to escape, which I agreed to do. His idea was to dress up as a German NCO, and with six Frenchmen and a Belgian named Callens, to bluff themselves out of the main gate at about six-thirty in the evening. The scheme seemed to me almost impossible, but Kick was enthusiastic about it and persuaded me that it would probably come off, if only because it was so improbable that anyone would attempt such a thing. There were three sentries and three gates and a guardhouse to pass, and the real danger was that if they passed the first sentry and gate and were stopped in front of the second, they would be caught in the outer courtyard at the tender mercy of two angry sentries and, in my opinion, would stand an excellent chance of being stuck with a bayonet. However, Kick realized that as well as I did, and, as it is for every man to judge the risks he cares to take, I promised to do my part, which was quite simple. About 6 p.m. I went into room 41 and there they were all dressing up and painting their faces, etc., as if for private theatricals. Kick was excellent as a German unteroffizier. He had made a very passable pork-pie cap, of which the badge in front is very easy to imitate by painted paper. He had a dark overcoat on to which bright buttons, which would pass in the dark as German buttons, had been sewn, and he had a worn-out pair of German boots which had been given to one of the orderlies by a German. Some of the others had on the typical red trousers, but any sort of nondescript costume will do for a French orderly. They were timed to go as soon after 6.30 p.m., as the road was clear, and it was my job to give the signal. I was pleased to be able to report that I had never seen the sentry, who was on duty at the main gate before, and it was most unlikely that he knew any of their faces. I stood about opposite the packet office, and Abel came along the passage, and went in. Looking through the keyhole I saw that he was busy in there near the door and might come out at any moment. I reported this 
and the whole party came and stood in the dark turning of the passage by the bathroom, from where they could watch me peering through the packet-office keyhole. At last I saw Abel sit down at his table and begin writing, so I gave the signal. Immediately a whole troop of French orderlies, carrying mattresses, blankets, and bedding on their heads, came clattering down the passage, laughing and talking to one another in French. A German N.C.O. was among them, and as he went along he collided with a German-speaking Russian, a great friend of ours known as Charlie, who naturally cursed his eyes out in German. Kick took no notice, but going just ahead of his orderlies he cursed the sentry at the main gate for not opening the door more quickly for them, and stood aside counting them as they went out. One fellow came running down the passage a bit after the others. Kick waited for him, and then went out after them, and the door closed. I waited most anxiously for any noise which would show that things had gone wrong, but after ten minutes it seemed certain that they had got clear away. After half an hour of subdued rejoicing in the fort, for by that time the story had gone round, we suddenly heard an awful commotion among the Huns. The guards were turning out at the double, clutching their rifles amid a regular pandemonium of shouts and orders, and the roar of the commandant could be heard above the tumult. We turned out into the passages to see the fun. The C.O. was raving like a maniac. The minute he caught sight of us laughing at him he brandished his fist and shouted at us to go to our rooms. Oliphant and I started to argue that the bell had not gone, and therefore we need not go to our rooms but he told off a sentry who drove us back at the point of the bayonet, Oliphant protesting in his worst German. Sie dürfen nicht so sprechen mit ein English offizier. We cheered like mad and sang the Marseillaise, and Onless Aura, in fact, celebrated the occasion to the best of our ability. What happened as soon as the party got outside the first door, Kick told me afterwards. The second obstacle they had to pass was the gate which barred the roadway over the moat. This the sentry opened for them without a word, whilst Kick trod on his toes to distract his attention. As they passed the guard-house in the outer court several men came out and shouted at them, but they were unarmed, and Kick and company paid no attention. The outer gate consists of a double door which they knew would pull open without being unlocked once the bar was removed. They got the bar off and tore open the gate, and found a sentry waiting for them with a rifle and fixed bayonet outside. Wer kommt dann hier? said he. Kick was out first, and holding up his hand, said, Ruik, einer ist los. Be quiet, a prisoner has got away, and rushed past him into the darkness. Without giving the sentry time to recover his wits, the rest pushed past, throwing their mattresses, etc., on the ground at his feet, and disappeared. Kick and Dekugis went on together for a bit, thinking that the rest must have been held up or expecting to hear shots. Then they saw other figures moving near them in the darkness, and thought at first they were Germans searching, but found they were the rest of the party. It was not for some minutes afterwards that the alarm was given, but the whole party, after nearly running into a sentry on a neighboring fort, managed to get away from their pursuers. After a terribly hard eleven days' march they were all caught near the frontier. It was in the middle of winter and they suffered most dreadfully from cold and bad feet. All of them, with the exception of Kick and Callens, had gone out, according to English ideas of escaping, very badly prepared for such a journey at that time of the year. They had quite insufficient food, though they had opportunities of carrying out any amount, 
insufficient socks, grease, and numerous other things. They also lost their way rather badly the first two nights. Then Kick took charge, and the latter part of the journey they went by the same route which Buckley and I afterwards followed. None of them had thought of going into proper training, and to have reached the frontier under such conditions was a wonderful feat of endurance. They were in a terrible condition when they were caught, when within seventy kilometers of the frontier, just north of Stockick, they separated, the Frenchmen going on together and making a forced march of sixty kilometers in one night, and the Belgians coming on in their own time. Both parties were caught on the same day and about the same time. The Frenchmen, because they got into a country close to the frontier where they could find no decent place to lie up, and, as there was a light fall of snow, their tracks were traced. The Belgians were caught in a very unlucky manner. Their hiding place was excellent, but on a Sunday the Germans usually go out shooting, and a shooting party came up on them. A dog came up and sniffed at them, and then an old German with a gun stared into the bush and said, Es ist ein Fuchs. It's a fox. They soon found it was not a fox, and Kick and Callens were hauled out. The Württembergers treated them very well indeed, and said they were almost sorry they had captured them, as they had made such a sporting effort, or words to that effect. They were escorted back to the fort by a very decent Württemberg officer who was furious with the commandant when he laughed and jeered at them for being recaptured. Well, said Kick in excellent German to the commandant, if you leave all the gates open, how are prisoners to know that they are not allowed to go out that way? The Württemberg officer remarked, as he said good-bye to them outside, that the Prussians were brutes, but the Bavarians were swine. Which remark seems to me very much to the point. All the party, with the exception of a very young Frenchman called Lacroix, had painful and swollen feet, and all without exception were ravenously hungry for a week or more after they had been returned to prison. One of them retired to hospital for several weeks, and I believe that there was a danger at one time that he would lose his feet owing to frostbite. However, they healed in time. As far as I remember, they received no special punishment for this escape. They probably got five days' jug each, but, as I have explained before, this was a mere farce. Each of the three sentries whom they had passed got three months, and I don't imagine that was any farce at all for the unfortunate sentries. During the spell of fine weather which we had before the winter set in, Medlicott and Buckley joined forces and made an attempt to escape by a method which, in my opinion, was as unpleasant and risky as any which was attempted in Fort Nine. With the help of the Commandant de Goy, they persuaded some French orderlies to wheel them out concealed in the muck and rubbish boxes. We buried them one afternoon beneath potato peel and muck of every description, heaved the boxes onto a handcart, and then from the top of the ramparts watched four orderlies, escorted by a sentry, wheel them out to the rubbish heap about two hundred yards from the fort. In the boxes they were lying on sacking, so that when the box was upset the sacking would fall over them. We saw the first box upset apparently successfully, but as they were about to deal with the second, which contained Medlicott, there was a pause. The sentry unslung his rifle, and it was obvious to us that they had been discovered. Buckley's account of what happened was as follows. At about 4.45 Medlicott and I proceeded to where the boxes stood. 
and after some of the rubbish had been taken out we were thrust into its place by the willing hands of Evans, Milne, Fairweather, and Oliphant, and covered up again with rubbish. In due course the orderlies arrived, the boxes were loaded onto a cart, and the procession started. All seemed to be going extremely well, as far as I could judge from my uncomfortable position. The sentry was picked up at the guardhouse, and I heard with joy the gate of the fort being unlocked to let the party out. The orderly stopped the cart at the rubbish heap, or rather some hundred yards short of it, as we found out afterwards, our combined weight having made further progress in the snow impossible, and started to unload the box in which I was concealed. As instructed, they unloaded us as far away from the sentry as possible. I felt my box taken off the cart and turned over. I lay still and seemed to be well covered with rubbish and to be unnoticed. I heard Memlicott's box unloaded alongside of me, but just as this was being completed I felt someone tugging at the Burberry I was wearing, a corner of which was showing from under the rubbish. It had been arranged previously that if either one of us was discovered the one discovered first was to give himself up at once and endeavor to conceal the presence of the other. I lay still for a few seconds, but as the tugging continued I concluded the game was up and I stood up, literally covered in sackcloth and ashes. I must have looked a fairly awe-inspiring sight, and I evidently caused some alarm in the noble breast of a German civilian who had come to hunt the rubbish heap for scraps of food and clothing and who evidently thought he had discovered a gold-mine in the shape of a Burberry which he had been trying to pull off my back for the last few minutes. Anyway, he retired with some speed to a safe distance. The sentry, who up to the time of my getting up had noticed nothing wrong, at this point began to perform rifle exercise in the close proximity of my person, and generally to behave in an excited and dangerous manner. Then followed for the next few minutes the unpleasant and at last far too frequent experience of staring down the muzzle of a German rifle, held as it seemed with remarkable steadiness in spite of the excitement of the man behind it. The guard, whose attention had been attracted by the combined shouts of the civilian and the sentry, next appeared on the scene at the double. They were cold, hungry, and excited, to say the least of it. Having failed to convince my sentry that I was alone, and that there was nobody under the other heap of rubbish, I warned Medlicott of the guard's approach and advised him to get up. This he did, and was at once set upon by the oncoming landstorm, who really looked as if they meant to do him in. After a considerable show of hate, in which I received a hefty clout over the knee with the butt of a rifle, we were marched back to the fort. A wild and disorderly scene followed between Medlicott, the German commandant, and myself, of which I have a very vivid recollection. It ended by my being ejected by force from the Commandant's office, but not before both Medlicott and I had either concealed our valuable maps and compasses, or had passed them unobserved into the hands of the willing friends who had come to see the fun. Soon after the recapture of Kick and Party the moat froze over, and though the Germans for several days were able to keep it broken by going round in a boat every day, they at last had to give it up. It was rather hard to get any conclusive proof as to whether the ice would bear or not, but one evening, after testing the ice with stones, we decided that if there was a frost that night we, that is to say, Oliphant, Medlicott, Milne, Fairweather, Wilkin, and myself, would run over the south rampart and across the ice just before the evening appell. We made complete preparations, and every one of us had ten days' rations, 
and everything else necessary for a march in winter to the frontier. However, it never came off, as at morning appell next day the commandant informed us that the doors into the inner courtyards would not be opened again until the moat thawed. This was rather a blow, because I felt sure that if we had only had the courage to try, the ice would have borne us the evening before. About this time, or perhaps rather earlier, there were one or two attempts to escape on the way to the dentist. Gousselier and another Frenchman and Fairweather were all booked to go one afternoon to the dentist at Ingolstadt. They went under escort, and if they could delay matters so as to return in the darkness it would be the simplest thing in the world to get away. However, they made an awful mess of things, and though they came back in the dark, owing to good procrastination by Fairweather, only Dusselier got away, and the other Frenchman knocked up the sentry's rifle as he fired. This was a badly managed business, as all three men ought to have been able to escape from a single sentry in the dark. Dusselier did not get very far, as the weather was very cold and he was insufficiently prepared. Being alone, too, was a great handicap. His feet got very bad, and he had practically to give himself up, or at any rate to take quite absurd risks after being three or four days out, and was recaptured. The real risks were taken by Fairweather and the other Frenchmen, and I don't quite know how they failed to get done in by an enraged sentry. Another rather ingenious but still more unsuccessful attempt was made on the way to the dentist by Frenchmen. The idea was to go into one of those large round urinals which are fairly common in French and German towns. Inside they did a very rapid change, put on false beards, spectacles, etc., and walked out at the other end. Unfortunately the sentry recognized them. In what I have written and tend to write, it must not be imagined that I am giving an exhaustive account of all that happened at Fort Nine. I can give a fairly detailed account of the main incidents of my own prison career, but even this is not chronologically correct. Otherwise I can only note a certain number of incidents and stories which will help to illustrate the sort of life we led in this prison. Most of these incidents have to do with escaping or attempting to escape but it must not be imagined that this is the only thing we ever did or thought about. It was our work, so to speak. Just as at the front, whilst fighting is the main business, soldiers nevertheless manage to amuse themselves pretty well behind the line in rest billets by sports, gambling, sing-songs, and dinners, so with us, whilst escaping was the main object in life, a large part of our time was taken up with lessons in languages, most vigorous games of hockey and tennis, poker and bridge, cooking and eating food, dancing and music, reading the German papers, and discussing the war news, we were pretty good at reading between the lines, and attending lectures which were given nearly every night on subjects varying from aviation to Victor Hugo. After a week or so of hard frost a thaw set in, the ice melted on the moat, and we were again let out into the courtyards. Hockey started once more, and we had some very good games. Some time before this Oliphant's sentence had come through, and he was sent off to Vesel for six months' imprisonment in a fortress. As a punishment, I believe, for attempting to escape, and for things incidental to escaping, such as cutting wire and having maps and other forbidden articles in his possession. When it started to freeze again I thought of the last time and determined not to miss another opportunity. 
one morning after testing the ice by throwing stones from the top of the bank, I determined to make the attempt that evening. The appell bell went about 5 p.m., and about 5.30 it became dark. My idea was to start as the appell bell went, believing that they would not be able to catch us before the darkness came down. We had to run down a steep bank onto the ice, about forty yards across the ice, and then two hundred yards or so through one or two trees before we could put a cottage between ourselves and the sentries. There was certain to be some shooting, but we reckoned that the sentries' hands would be very cold, as at five p.m. they would have been at their post for just two hours, and they were armed with old French rifles, which they handled very badly. Wilkin agreed to come with me, and Kick, when he heard what was up, said he would like to come too. He had always a surprising faith in me. He had scarcely recovered from his last escape, but although he was not very fit he was, or would have been, a great asset to the party as he knew the way. This was especially valuable, as our maps at the time were only copies of copies, and consequently not very accurate. The plan was to carry out rucksacks and other equipment nearly to the top of the south bank, and hide behind one of the traverses just under the path. From there we should be hidden from the prying eyes of the sentry on the center Capenier. The 5 p.m. appell bell was the signal for two parties, one headed by Major Gaskell and one by Captain Unette, to distract the attention of the two sentries by throwing stones onto the ice. We would then seize our opportunity and rush down the bank, and we hoped to be most of the way across the ice before the firing began. The question which really was causing us some anxiety was, would the ice bear? I felt confident it would. Wilkins said he was beastly frightened, but he had made up his mind to come, and he would go through with it. Kick said that, if I thought it would bear, he was quite content, and I really believed that the matter would not worry him in the least. It would have been a very unpleasant business if the ice had broken, as with the heavy clothes we had on, I doubt if we could have got out again. Still, anyone who lets his mind dwell too much on what may happen will never escape from any prison in Germany. Our equipment was pretty complete. I had very thick underclothes, two sweaters, a thick leather flying coat and a tunic, and socks over my boots so as not to slip when running across the ice. The others were dressed much the same, except that Kick had a cap which had been stolen by Oliphant from the Commandant. He said it might come in useful in impersonating a German NCO, conducting two English prisoners. In our rucksacks we had ample rations for a ten days' march, and enough solidified alcohol for at least one hot meal per diem. We managed to get our bags and coats up into the jumping-off place without being seen by the sentry, and without much difficulty. I remember walking across the courtyard about four-thirty with Gilliland, picking up stones for him to throw at the ice. I think he was more nervous about it than we were. As is often the case, this sort of thing is more of a strain on the nerves for the onlookers than for those actually taking part. We were all in our places and in our kit, with our sacks on our backs, a few minutes before five. Whilst we were waiting for the bell to go, there were several prisoners walking up and down the path in front of us along the top of the rampart. Of course they took absolutely no notice of us except one Frenchman who spoke to us without looking round, and assured us that the ice would not bear, a cheerful thing to say under the circumstances. Mais oui, vous allez voir, we answered. It was a bad five minutes waiting there. Then the bell went, and almost immediately I heard laughter and shouting, 
and the noise of stones falling on the ice. Then we jumped up and bolted over the path and down the slope. I was slightly ahead of the other two, and when I got to the bottom of the steep bank I gave a little jump onto the ice, hoping it would break at the edge rather than in the middle if it were going to break at all. But it bore all right, and I shuffled across at a good speed. About halfway over I heard repeated and furious yells of, Halt! followed soon afterwards by a fair amount of shooting, but I have no idea how many shots were fired. I was soon up the bank on the far side, through a few scattered trees, and over the frozen stream by a plank bridge. Then I looked back. The others were only just clambering up the bank from the moat and were a good one hundred yards behind me. What had happened was this. I had made a small jump onto the ice, thus avoiding the rotten edge. The other two did not but stepped carefully onto the edge, which broke under their weight, and they fell flat on their faces. For the moment they were unable to extricate themselves. Wilkins says he got somehow upside down, and his heavy rucksack came over his head so that he was quite unable to move. Then Kick got himself free and pulled out Wilkins. At first he thought of beating a retreat up the bank again, believing naturally that the ice would not bear but then he saw me three parts of the way across and heard the sentries shooting apparently at me, so he and Wilkin, keeping a bit separated so as not to offer too large a target, ran across after me. The sentry in the center, who had been well attracted by Gaskell and the stone-throwing party, only caught sight of me when I was well on the ice, but then he started yelling halt and loading his rifle as fast as possible. He then ran to the edge of his compagnie and dropping on one knee fired and missed. Cold fingers, abuse, and perhaps a few stones too which were hurled at him by the gang on the pathway just above his head did not help to steady his aim. After one or two shots his rifle jammed, yells and cheers from the spectators. He tore at the bolt, cursing and swearing, and then put up his rifle at the crowd of jeering prisoners above him. But they could see that the bolt had not gone home and only yelled the more. The other sentry had started firing by this time, but he was out of sight of the prisoners in the fort, and Unette and Milne, who had been distracting his attention, Unette said the sentry nearly shot him once, ran off to prove an alibi. I don't know how many shots were fired altogether. Not a large number, as owing to the appearance of some civilians, they stopped firing when once Kick and Wilkin had got well on to the far bank of the moat. When I was halfway across the space between the moat and the cottage, I saw on the main road on my left a large four-horse wagon with a knot of gesticulating men in civilian clothes. We learnt afterwards that they were carters from a munition factory in the neighborhood and were fairly strong and healthy fellows. They were only about one hundred and fifty yards away and started after us led by a fellow with a cart-whip. The going was very heavy as there were two or three inches of snow and heavy plow underneath so we made slow progress as we were carrying a lot of weight in clothes and food. They quickly overtook me and the fellow who was leading slashed me across the shoulders with his whip. I turned and rushed at him, but he ran out of my reach. The rest of them then came round and I began to see that the game was up, especially as at that moment I saw some armed soldiers coming on bicycles along the road from the fort. The next thing to do was to avoid being shot on recapture. I stood still whilst they all snarled round me, and beckoning the smallest man said to him in German, "'Come here and I will give myself up to you.' The fellow with the whip immediately came forward. "'Not to you, you schweinhuden,' I said. "'You hit me with that whip.' 
The little fellow was quite pleased, as I think there is one hundred marks reward for the recapture of an officer, and caught hold of my coattails, and we started off towards the fort. Wilkin had given himself up to two or three others by this time, but I saw that Kick was trying to sneak off without being noticed while the mob was occupied with us. However, a few seconds later they saw him. Two or three gave chase, and he was brought in soon after us. We had not gone more than a few steps towards the fort when I saw the Feldwebel running across the snow towards us. He came up in a furious rage, cursing us and brandishing a revolver. We waved him aside and told him not to make such a fuss, as it was all over now, and he soon calmed down. Some soldiers then came up and marched us in, the Frenchmen cheering us as we came through the gate. Before we came to the fort we had to cross a bridge over the stream, and as we walked along I tore up my map and dropped it into the stream. I forgot to say that Kick, when he went off by himself, just before being taken, had managed to get rid of the Commandant's hat by stuffing it down a hole. As Kick crossed the bridge he took out his map to throw it into the water, but was seen by his guard, a horrid little fellow who used to help with the clerical work in the bureau. Kick dropped the map and a scuffle ensued. Kick got much the best of this and kicked the map into the stream. There was quite an amusing scene in the bureau. We all of us had to take off most of our clothes and be searched. I had nothing I could hide, but both Kick and Wilkin had compasses which they smuggled through with great skill. Kick had hidden his in the lining of his greatcoat, and Wilkin kept his in his handkerchief which he pulled out of his pocket and waved to show there was nothing in it, at the same time holding the compass, and then put it back into his pocket. All our foodstuffs and clothes were returned to us, with the exception of my black flying coat. I complained about this and appealed to a German general who come round to inspect the fort a few days later, and it was returned to me, but was eventually confiscated when I tried to escape in it a week or two later. We had several tins of solidified alcohol with us for smokeless cooking purposes. These were taken, though we protested. For all the things taken off us we were given receipts by the Germans and told, rather ironically, that we could have them back at the end of the war. Just as we were going out I saw my tin of solidified alcohol, which was valuable stuff. We used to manufacture it in the fort from paraffin and soap, standing almost within my reach, and very nearly managed to pocket it as I went out, and suggested that he should take in one or two pals, have a row in there, and steal it back for me. This was the sort of expedition that the Frenchmen loved and were absolute masters at. Within ten minutes I had my solid alcohol back all right, and kept my receipt for it as well. Footnotes Footnote 3. Captain Unette had been sent to Fort Nine as a punishment for escaping from Klosthal. End of chapter 10. Recording by Tom Weiss. Tom's Audiobooks.com.